search and rescue in this class. We'll look over some buildings and how do you assess damage. And uh, you already had classes on utility controls, correct? How about medical? Did medical? Okay. So like I said, my name's Alec. I'm on truck 11. So let's go into light search and rescue. Before you start, what do you do? Stop, look, listen, and think. Anytime you pull up to an incident or you see something, you take a breath and stop, survey the situation, use all your senses, and then think about what you're going to do. And those are all components of something called a size-up. It's a continuous fact-gathering process which will dictate appropriate action. What's the key word in that definition? Continuous. There are many components to size up. What's one of the components to size up? Gathering facts. You want to assess the type of damage there is. What kind of a situation is it? What is the issue? Is it a medical problem? If it's a medical, is it a big hurt or is it a little hurt? Is it a rescue situation? And is, if it's a fire, do you have the resources to control or extinguish that fire? How about your situation? Do you have all your people? Do you have all the resources that you need? Have you collected all the materials that you need if you're going to start doing a lifting exercise because someone's trapped? Okay, because you never start a rescue, you never start a lifting exercise, you never start anything unless you know that you're going to be able to finish it. You have enough of the resources to do it. And do you have the right equipment? Do you need specialized equipment? Do you have access to that? Maybe, maybe not. So size up, you want to establish your priorities, make your decisions, you want to come up with a plan, and after you have that plan, you're going to take action. And then remember, it's a continuous fact-gathering process, you want to evaluate your progress. There are 50% of the people can be rescued by who? This is where you come in for the next 30% to make it 80% of the people. Next 30% can be rescued by you people. Then there's another 15%, that's where the fire department comes in, sort of the sheriff's department, people who are trained to do those kind of rescues. And the other 5% is by specialized teams, the USAR teams. If you were to get to somebody within the first 30 minutes, they have a 99% chance, a greater than a 99% chance of surviving. If you get to them within the first day, it drops down to 81%. Still not bad. But what happens on the second day? Plummets quite a bit just under 34%. Now, you're always going to have your safety equipment with you, correct? When you get together and you assemble, make sure that you have at least one person has something here that you guys can all use. Different types of buildings are in the city. We have wood, unreinforced masonry. You have high-rise and you have tilt-ups. Okay, what's the safest construction type to be in? Four stories or less. Wood? Yeah, wood frame buildings. Why is wood the safest building to be in four stories or less? It flexes. Yeah, it's flexible. Okay, what ha what's the danger here? Chimney. Yeah, the fireplace. Be aware of the fact that just because it's a wood building and the event caused some sort of compromise of the structure of the building and the building's still standing doesn't necessarily mean there's not a danger there. So what could you as NERTS do to make that situation better or at least keep it the same so no one else gets hurt. Pardon me? Tape it, off. Tape it off. Yeah. Keep people away. Perfect. You can take out some of that yellow tape that you have, that yellow caution tape and string it around and keep people back. 
In this particular case, what could you do to make that situation better? Turn off the gas. And where would you turn the gas off at? At the street? Okay. That's a good place to do it. But you always want to do it at the safest location. So if the street is the safest location, that's where you would do it at. Okay, this house here fell over. It doesn't have something called a shear wall. So it's just a platform on a platform or a balloon. Nothing that keeps the wall from, from racking, they call it. So you want to make sure that the buildings that you are in are sheared. At least there's a connection between the plate, the stud, and the bottom plate. Tie, tie it all together. Unreinforced masonry buildings. Safe building or not such a safe building? Not safe at all. You have deep set windows, arched windows, metal plates, and then weak mortar. So weak mortar, what is that? It's just brick on top of brick on top of brick. There's an example of the header row. You see how the rows turn perpendicular to the others. And if you were to count, one, two, three, four, they don't have it in that picture, five, but you'll see it in some others. Here's another one. You can see the header rows in this one. See the bricks going the other way about every five, seven rows. Deep set windows. There's a close-up of one of those plates. Parapet wall is a clue that this building is an unreinforced masonry building because which direction can that wall go? Right back out. Okay. This building, brick or wood? What are some of the clues? Okay, how, what are the windows? They're deep set. There's a clue right there, deep set. Deep set window, unreinforced masonry. Okay. Can you see the metal plates? There is a metal plate right over there up in the corner. There's another one over there. Hard to see. Also has a parapet on it. Deep set windows, even though it has stucco on it, don't be fooled that that's wood up above. It's all brick because of deep set windows. So here we go with part of the roof and the parapet. This is over on Bluxham Street. See where the bricks fell? Right on top of a car. There were five people in that car. Buildings like this, you're near it. Where's the best place to be, do you think? Do you want to be far away from it? Okay. Do you want to be far away from it initially? Yeah. But what if you're not far away from it when it starts happening? Are you going to try to outrun it? No. So you want to get up close to that building because the bricks have a tendency to fall out, fall straight down. But if you'll notice, right up next to the building, there's not that many bricks. All right, tilt-up buildings. They're pre-made buildings. They're made on the site, generally speaking. Uh, you see warehouses, large, expansive uh, buildings are made out of them, usually one-story type buildings. In other words, there's not another story on top. And they didn't make their corner connections very well. So when they didn't make their corner connections very well, they moved independent. One side would go this way, one side would go that way, and then the roof would fall down. How about high-rises? High-rises are safe buildings to be in. Yeah, what happens in a high-rise when there's ground movement? Sways. Yeah, it sways. So where's most of the damage going to be to high-rise buildings? Because they're not going to fall down. They're on rollers. They're on springs. They're, they're designed to withstand movement. But what about the stuff inside those buildings? So where's most of the damage going to be in those buildings? On the upper floors. So high-rise buildings, different elements. You have structural and non-structural elements. Steel beams and the concrete, of course, are the structural, but it's the contents. It's the stuff inside that's going to hurt you. Outside, steel going up, structural part. There's some floors being put in, structural part. 
But in this, you can see, if you take a look at it, they have the non-structural, which is the gr uh, brownish, orangish area. So that would be like your drop ceilings, your cabinets that are hung there, your light fixtures, your HVAC system. In this particular case, the Alcoa building, the structural and <clears throat> the structural members are on the outside of the building. Okay. So you can see it right away. But what's the danger with this building? Glass. Glass. Good. Glass. <coughs> so here you have your typical office. What are some of the hazards here? Remember earthquake eyes. What's some of the hazards? Yeah, the lights. Glass windows. Yeah, glass we already talked about. It's a bad thing. How about all the book stuff, right? Building's still standing, but everything else can you know, fall right on top of you. Bookcases, you want to secure those, right? Because this is what's going to happen. And if you as nurse, you went in there and got a report that there may be people trapped, where would you start looking for them? Upper floors in void spaces. Again, we talked about glass. Were these people a little too close, do you think? Did they give you a rule of thumb how far away to stay from buildings? Well, it's actually one and a half times the height of the building. So if you're a 30-foot building, because well, you already did the math, you want to be 45 feet away. When glass falls out, too, do you think it just falls straight down? No, it kites its way around. Okay, it can kite up to two blocks away. So be aware of that. You've got your helmet on, remember, and your goggles. Types of hazards, we have above ground, ground, and below ground. What's an above ground hazard? Glass, wires, falling objects, okay? Some of the ground level hazards, glass. What's bad about uh, uneven surfaces that are slippery? <laughs> we already talked about that. You fall, you're going to hurt yourself. Is water a bad thing to have? Water seeks its own level. If there's a hole, it's covering up the hole. You could be walking and all of a sudden down into a hole, correct? Or a basement. Water has weight to it. can cause damage to buildings, cause buildings to collapse. And it doesn't mix very well with electricity. Okay. Below ground hazards. If you come up and you see a leak and the water's pouring out of the building, you know how to control it or try to control it? Sure, you go right up to that utility shutoff and turn it off. Basements are bad places to be. There's usually only one way out. That's the way you went in. And if that's compromised, you're in big trouble. Forcible entry. When do you use forcible entry? What kind of tools do you use? You want to go in. The first thing you're going to do is always try to get in the easiest way. And what do you want to use to force entry? You can use axes. You can use pry bars or jacks, you know, car jacks. You need to do a lift. You don't have any levers. There's some cars parked outside. You go up and ask the owner of the car, is it okay if I use your car jack? Because you're not going to break in, are you? There's also cutting and boring. Again, here's that axe. And, of course, striking and battering. You can use a sledgehammer or a battering ram and then an axe. How do you break glass? At the top. Good. And we're going to say that this is the glass from here on down. So how would you break it? Do I just want to take it like this and smash it this way? No. Pardon me? The end of the board. I'm going to use the end of the board. But I'm also going to remember that the glass can hurt me. And if I were to hit it like this, the glass could slide down and cut my hands. 
So you want to start at the top, like he said, and you want to hold this down, and you want to turn your head away, but you're going to have on your protection. And you start at the top, and you smash the glass this way, down like that. So if it does slide down, it's going to go away from you and not towards your hands. Real simple, common sense. Use a long-handled tool, stand to one side, strike up at the top, and uh, you want to clean it all out before you go in there. In this part of the lecture, we're going to talk about structural damage. We're going to talk about triaging buildings now, believe it or not. We're going to talk about uh, how to look at structural damage and actually tag these buildings, either light, moderate, or heavy damage buildings. We're going to talk a little bit about liquefaction. We're going to talk about uh, search and rescue techniques. And we're going to actually show you how, to, how we do search and rescue. And then uh, we're going to talk about lifting heavy objects. We're really talking about rescue here. So signs of possible structural damage. As a NERT team, you have to be able to identify buildings. You have to be able, during, during a disaster, especially an earthquake, walk down the street and be able to look at buildings and understand this building is okay, this building is bad. You know, as you walk down the street, especially if you're going to go into that building. Things to look for, the basics, horizontal and vertical lines. In this room, most construction works in 90 degree angles. If you look around the room, the beam, this beam is a little bit curved, but where the beam meets the walls, it hits at 90 degree angles. Basically makes vertical and horizontal lines. So you want to look for these things when you, when you look at a building. And it's not always obvious. If you looked above this, above the garage, you would see that the building looks okay. If you were at a distance and the bottom of the building was covered, you might think this building is okay. But this one was an example of the racking that we talked about. See how these, these studs are starting to fold on each other? If this whole thing fell over, the studs would be connected to each other. But this is an, ex an example of the racking. Obvious example of racking here, right? So if you walked up to this building, you're going to say, this is heavily damaged. Easy. So large cracks. Again, you want to look around the doors and the foundation here, right at the doors, because remember, the soft structure is the bottom structure. So that's going to move the most. And then right around the doors are structural, are structural members of the house. So that's where you're going to find a lot of the damage. This one, but uh, look at all the doorways again. This building, again, this is here in the marina. Uh, somebody wrote something on there. If you look really close, it says searched. Somebody wrote that there because maybe they thought somebody was inside. They went inside. We use a different method now. That's, it's in your book if you did your homework. Otherwise, I'll show you later in the lecture. Paint lines. Paint lines are another indicator of how damaged buildings are. Here on this building, if you want to look at the paint lines on this building, it's kind of hard to tell until you get up close. Remember, this building is kind of a grayish, tannish color, I guess. When you get a little bit closer... This side of the building should be the same color as this side of the building. What happened was this building moved away from the building next door, and that's how far it moved. So you can tell how far these buildings move. Separation between buildings. If you want to look at the separation to see if it's even, right? From, is it the same distance at the bottom as the top? But that's another indicator of how damaged buildings are. This one, eh, it looks fairly even, but when you get closer, you can tell with the racking on the bottom, that this building was pulled away. 
Liquefaction. Liquefaction is a term they use when uh, the ground is loose. Usually when uh, structures or infrastructure is built on sand or landfill, something that's not solid. What happens, what happens is uh, in shaking, during an earthquake, the earth that's very loose, that sand or uh, landfill, acts like water. So this is sand, sand and water coming up through a hole. In Japan, all these buildings were built on liquefaction. I forget what year this was, but this was a big, one of the big earthquakes. Seven-story building built on liquefaction. The amount of time that the earth shook, the earth underneath basically became liquid. And as it became liquid, the building just sank right into it until it stopped. And it sank enough where the building just fell over. So this is how we're going to classify them. Light, moderate, or heavily damaged buildings. Let's go into the light damage. Light damage buildings... Superficial damage, broken windows, some plaster that might be cracked. But basically, a light damaged building would be one you would classify that has mostly uh, damage to the contents. Uh, shelves falling over, uh, windows broken, that type of thing. If you had to go into a light damaged building, you would use these procedures. Of course, you gather information about a building when you go into, before you go into it. As much information, who lives there, that type of thing. Shut off any utilities needed. You'd locate and triage any injured patients, transport any of the immediates right away, and then of course document and communicate the location of any trapped or missing persons. It could be an invalid. In fact, most of the injuries and most of the deaths in earthquakes, they don't happen with structures falling on you. They happen with items falling on you, like televisions and bookcases. That's most of the deaths that happen in earthquakes. Okay, moderately damaged building. This would be one that has a greater amount of cracking on the interior. Small cracks around the doors and foundations. Moderately damaged building you can actually go into. The procedures you would follow are basically the same. You gather information, shut off utilities when you need to, locate, uh, locate and stabilize injured patients and get them out. So uh, evacuate the injured to a safe area because you want to get out as soon as you can and you want to get them out as soon as you can. And then again, document what you found in that building. So this is a heavily damaged building. These are the two buildings that actually collapsed three days after the earthquake. Notice that uh, this building was leaning on this building. So procedures for heavily damaged buildings, don't go in. Main thing. But you still will gather information, shut off utilities if it's safe to do so, only if it's safe to do so. You report it, or we could cordon off the area, right? Just to make sure that nobody else goes in that area. Or, and then definitely tell, tell the fire chief or whomever, and then we could go in there and, and try to do it safely. Now, when we talk about search and rescue... I really want to make a distinction between searching and rescuing. So searching is really basically looking for people, right? And then once we find a person, we switch modes and we go into this rescue mode. So when we talk about search and rescue, let, try not to get it too mixed up because uh, you think differently based on what you're doing. If you're searching, you, th you think about certain things. And then when you're rescuing somebody, you think about other things. The first... The first rule, of course, would be do not become a victim yourself. Whenever you do a search, you have to pre-plan. You have to understand um, who's doing what. We suggest that you work in two teams of at least two people. So that's at least four people doing a search at the very, very, very least. Because you want, uh, you want a team on the outside and a team on the inside. Proper safety equipment, we talked about equipment. We're only going to give you helmets. Well, we're going to give you vests, too. Are the vests going to protect you from anything? Yeah, no. <laughs> so we're going to give you helmets. Any other equipment, you've got to get on your own. 
we're, uh, we'll give you gloves if we have extra gloves. Usually they're donated to us. But gloves are nice to have. Uh, pers- people will say, I, I need knee pads. You need good shoes. You need good clothes that won't rip. So uh, things like uh, nails will be harder to rip through your skin. Decide on the duties and the tools. So who's good at what? So we were just talking about if I physically can't do something, when we show you how to do a search and rescue, don't do it. And make sure everybody else knows what you can and can't do. That's very, very important. Uh, know where your emergency exits are and what your signals are. Examine the exterior of a house. You want to know who's missing, right? If anybody is missing, does anybody live in the house? Structural damage of the house, because again, you want to know what you're walking into. Uh, potential hazards, gas, water, electrical, anything, broken glass. Uh, we mentioned some of that earlier. Again, know your exit and entry points. Uh, know where the utility shutoffs are if you have to turn them off. Again, you don't have to turn them off all the time, only if you have to. Know the occupancy load. Uh, any unique characteristics. Is this house, does it have a lot of glass? Is it on a hillside? Is it built on stilts? When you do a search and you enter, before you enter, you're going to make a marking. You're going to make a slash near the, near the front entrance. So everybody knows that you've gone inside. There's two things that are going to alert people that you've gone inside to do a search. One is this slash, and the other is the other team outside. Right? So if there's four of you on the team, there should be two people outside and a slash. When you enter the building, you might need forcible entry. We talked about that. Do you smell gas? If you smell gas, get out and then turn it off. Make sure it's safe. And then call out and listen because you're in there to do a search. So when you call out and listen, you've got to yell. You have to say, hey, NERT team, NERT volunteers, is anybody here? If you walk in with a team of about five people and you tell them, hey, let's call out, everybody's going to be yelling, hey, NERT team, hey, NERT team, hey, NERT and then you're not going to hear anything. So you got to listen too. Okay? So make sure you know with the team when you pre-plan, when you pre-plan that, hey, let's call out and let's give a couple of seconds to see if we could hear somebody. Okay? So not only call out, but just make sure that you can listen too. We want you to start your search from the top. So if you go into a building, start from the top and then work your way back. We want you to do a left or right-handed search pattern, meaning that when you enter a room or a building, we want you to find a wall and stay on that wall. We want to have somebody stay on that wall because that wall will show you the way out. Mark each individual unit. So the X that I was talking about, if you go into a multi-unit apartment building, you would want to do it, you would want to do it on, each, on each unit. So as I go into this apartment, you're going to do a slash, go in the apartment, do your search. When you come out, make the other slash and then you complete the information that's on the X. And this is how you complete the X. Again, at the top is a time that you entered. They want you to write the time that you leave also. So you would cross out the time that you entered and write the time that you leave because when the X is completed, they know the search was completed at that time. Where do you put this X? Where would you write it? Would you write it on the door? No, you wouldn't write it on the door because when you put it on the door and you open the door, then it's gone. So you want to put it on a wall next to the door. Now we're going to talk about rescuing. Same thing, when you rescue, you want to survey the hazards, you want to survey your area. Assess the medical conditions of uh, victims, when, that you have somebody that you're ready when you find someone, what are we going to do? When you find someone, what do we need? Do I have enough people to get this person out? Do I have the tools I need? You know, do I need to break a door or break a wall open? Uh, what would be the escape plans, just in case? Remember, these are the just-in-case questions again. What if something happens, if there's an after, aftershock, what's my quickest way, quickest way out? 
and develop a rescue plan. It's hard to develop a rescue plan when you're doing a search because you don't know where this victim is going to be. Don't push your physical or mental limits. If you need help, go get it. Remember, you got a team outside that matches your team inside. You can, you can send them and say, hey, go for more help. Tell them we need more help. We found a victim and we can't do it ourselves. So go back to um, our NERT staging area. Go back, tell the battalion chief, whatever you need, and get what you need. So uh, eliminate your hazards first. Make sure that you can work safely. And then remove the victim quickly, but bottom line, safely. Okay, lifting procedures. We're going to show you a demonstration of what you do. But when you do it, make sure you, you, you treat the patient and you tell them what's going on. Uh, you want to crib the object again. Uh, cribbing goes underneath the object or the load to make sure it stays off of the patient. That's the, uh, that's the idea of cribbing. Lift the load, the height of one piece of cribbing. So you want to lift a little at a time. You'll understand when we actually do this. Whenever the object is set down, it never rests on the patient. It always rests on the cribbing. What the team is doing is they're clearing an area. See, here's the I-beam. Here's the patient right there. They're building this box cribbing, which we're going to show you. And they're going to build it high enough so the I-beam is resting on that cribbing right there. Because that would take the weight, hopefully take some of the weight off of the patient. So now here's the patient. Here's the load right here that's on the patient. There's cribbing right here. There's some, a rescuer standing here with this lever. The lever is resting on this fulcrum right here, and they're going to lift this up. And then as they lift it, they're going to build the cribbing underneath the load so that the load will rest back onto the cribbing. So, okay, let's clear this area. Let's find something we could use as a fulcrum. So we can pull stuff off of Very good. Let's find, it. let's find some a fulcrum. Let's find some cribbing. And let's find a lever. So we need a lever that's long, right? We need a fulcrum that we could rest it on. And then we need things we could use as cribbing. Now, okay, don't lift yet. No. You don't want to lift until you're ready to put cribbing underneath. When you lift, lift slowly. Get down three. One, two, three. You got a problem. You got that, uh, this is under the fulcrum. This is under a crib. The fulcrum is under the crib. So the one thing you don't want to do is lift and put it back on the patient. Get him out. Get him out. Remember, this is Good. Good. So we're going to show you four rescue carries. Uh, one of the rescue carries we're going to show you. We're actually going to have you do it. It's a blanket drag. Something good if you're by yourself and you have to get somebody out. You'd use a blanket or a sheet or a throw rug or something. You wrap them up and get them out. Works well on these types of floors. Doesn't work well on carpet. Two-person carry. We'll show you this. This is great to go long distances. Uh, works great if you have rugged terrain. A chair is a similar type carry, except you put them on a chair. It works much better. Works great on stairs, even. The last one we're going to show you is just a blanket stretcher, an improvised blanket stretcher. How to carry so, uh, someone long distances. And you'd want to use at least four people. We suggest six or however many hands you could get on it. But we're going to show you that. Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Open fire head. If you can grab that, yeah, just pull it. Make sure it's past your head, though. Past your head, okay, there's that four Okay. And then you can pull that out. Pull that up. So, yeah. But only on her count. Okay, so on the count of three. One, two, three, roll. Perfect. Okay, now while you have this person up, remember, you want to end up about halfway. Two, one, three. Let's roll the person back. Okay. Okay, now you guys are going to do what? You're going to grab the leg. On the count of three. One, two, three. Take a look at the back again. Okay. And then we'll roll it back one, down. One, two, three. Wait, Perfect. Wait. 
with your legs. Moving close, moving tight, moving tight, because it's easier, closer to you. Okay. <laughs> now you want to go that way, so. Okay, so you want to go my way. So one, two, three. Okay, why don't you stop? One, two, three. Good. Make sure you keep your back straight. Some ladder safety. Basically, when you're using a ladder out there, make sure you keep the ladder 10 feet away from wires. Make sure the ladder is secure, that it's on stable ground, that it's even. If it's on a hill, we really don't want you to use it on a hill, but if it's on a hill, make sure it's shimmy with something that's stable. And then make sure when you climb a ladder, make sure it's the right angle. We suggest a 70 degree angle. If, if you have a ladder, if the feet of the ladder are at the tip of my feet and you stick your hand out onto a rung, the angle of the ladder is about the correct climbing angle there. But when you climb, again, hands on the rung, just never let go of the ladder. Stand in the center, climb straight up. If you climb on the edges of the rung, the ladder will go this way. Look up just so you know where you're going and you can see the rungs that you're going to climb. And then walk vertically up the ladder, meaning walk straight up the ladder. Don't step off to the, the side of the ladder. Uh, kind of common sense. Make sure you read chapter 7 through the end of the manual. 